Blog Talk Radio. Joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some pretty tough topics sometimes. Sometimes they're nicer topics than others, and sometimes they're topics that make you angry. Sometimes they're topics that make you sad. Sometimes they're topics that make you laugh. And today we have one that kind of, um, you know, it's a serious topic. And we've done some things, some shows uh, on on this topic before, but um, there are so many nuances and so many aspects to this that I don't feel like we can really do enough shows on women, uh, mothers who go to court and uh, who are in domestic violence situations. And I'm really fortunate in that I met a wonderful woman, or at least met her on, online, and, and uh, her name is Margot Lindauer. Margot Lindauer wrote an article that caught my eye. It's been out for a couple of years, but it's still absolutely apropos. And her article was Damned If You Do, damned if you don't, and it's about uh, women who are caught up in multi-court situations. For those of you who have been fortunate enough to not be in this situation, multi-court means, okay, you're divorced, you go to divorce and family court. You have any kind of criminal charges, including domestic violence charges against you, you go to criminal court. You have somebody who um, uh, you have different systems that may be involved. You may have somebody who called uh, child protective services. You've got all these systems that are that are involved in your life all of a sudden when you find yourself in a situation like this, and all of them have conflicting goals, conflicting missions, and a lot of times conflicting demands for a mother. Thank you for joining us, Margot. Thank you for having me. Good, good. And and I really tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get what what do you do? I could read your bio, but I think it's better if it comes from you. What do you do? So, I'm currently the director of the Domestic Violence Institute at Northeastern University School of Law. And within the Domestic Violence Institute, I run a domestic violence clinic for law students. And the law students do representation of victims of domestic violence in district court here in Massachusetts. So that's the lowest level court on restraining order, mm-hmm. uh, restraining order matters. Then along with the actual direct representation, there's a concurrent seminar class that I teach on domestic violence, which has a theory component, so the history of the domestic violence movement, a component about models, related to domestic violence, current literature about domestic violence and sexual assault, and then there's a litigation component to the clinic as well that teaches students empowering um, interviewing skills, how to do an effective direct examination, for example, or an opening statement. Well, anybody who's been involved in the court system uh, prob- and, and dom- with domestic violence issues is probably absolutely delighted that you are training future lawyers uh, about these situations because it's pretty tough. Domestic violence issues are pretty tough no matter how you look at them, especially in court. And uh, even if you win, you lose if you go to court, I think, uh, in these situations. Margo, Many times. Are sorry. you an attorney? You are an attorney. Yes, I am. You an are attorney. an attorney, right? Yes, I'm an attorney. Okay, I'm... so you look at it from a standpoint. Go ahead. No, no, no. I am an attorney. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so you look at it from a professional standpoint as well as a kind of a social, uh, sociological standpoint. Absolutely. Why did you get into this this area? Um, well, my path has been a little circuitous, but I knew I came to law school knew, knowing that I wanted to work with women, and I didn't know exactly how I wanted to work with women. Initially, I thought I wanted to be an immigration lawyer. Um, I spoke Spanish and had, um, previous to law school, been working with a lot of Spanish-speaking homeless families. Um, But while I was here at law school, I'm also a graduate of Northeastern University School of Law, I took two legal clinics. I took a clinic, um, a benefits clinic that worked with individuals who were struggling with public benefits, such as um, TANF, welfare, food stamps, that sort of thing. And then I also took the domestic violence clinic, and I just really fell in love with the work. I I um, loved working with my clients. Of course, not all of my clients were women, but many of them were. 
And after law school, I had the opportunity, an amazing opportunity, to work at a local domestic violence agency as a staff attorney doing just the work that I do now and that I wrote about in my article representing victims of domestic violence on restraining order issues as well as family law issues. Yeah. It gets in your blood, doesn't it, when you start seeing and learning more about domestic violence situations, especially when it comes to child custody. Um, it is so multifaceted uh, that, uh, you know, it, it just, you, I don't know how once you've worked with domestic violence um, situations, how you can possibly not do that again, uh, you know, ever again. It, it's just amazing. Well, um, I want to throw out our phone number because I hope a lot of people call today and take advantage of Margot and her expertise. Our phone number is 646 646- Three seven eight zero four three zero six four six three seven eight zero four three zero, and what we're going to talk about is this conflicting um, uh, situation that women find themselves in. They they have child protective services coming, and child protective services says, "Well, you need to leave right now. You need to get out of here." And you need to get that child safe because the the husband or the the partner has been abusive. So you need to do that. So the mother, thinking that she wants to, of course, uh, protect her child, okay, great, I'm out of here. I've gone to a shelter. I've got my child with me. But then what happens? Then the father gets his attorney to say, you know what, family court judge, she's not letting me see my child. And the family court judge says, well, you can't do that. You've got to give him access to the child. So now mom's in the middle. She's got CPS telling her, "If you, you have to protect this child from this father who's a bit, been abusive. And she's got the family court judge saying, if you don't give access to this father, then you are interfering with his rights as a father. So what on earth is she supposed to do, Margo? So what happens to victims of domestic violence in the legal system is really befuddling, and it's befuddling to all of us, even professionals who've been doing this for a long time. For clients who are involved in in these multi-systems, it's incredibly confusing. So for for a victim of domestic violence who has the involvement, like you said, of CPS or the state's child welfare agency, and the child welfare agency says, that the only way that a mother can keep her children is to leave an abusive situation, get a restraining order, and go into shelter or new housing. And she does that, theoretically obtaining the safety that CPS has wanted her to. The Child Welfare Agency many times will then close the case, right? The case will be closed because the children are safe. And that is, that is the mission of the Child Welfare Agency is to keep children in whatever state safe. Once the case is technically closed, there's no open case, even though, even though potentially a mother still has a social worker, right? And that, in that moment, yeah. oftentimes fathers or the non-protective parent will go to family court and file for custody. Because the CPS case or the child welfare case is closed, there is no open case anymore, and then that case goes along the trajectory that you talked about where a judge is likely going to issue an order of joint custody. But for a victim of domestic violence, the timing of all of this is very confusing, and it doesn't make sense because, like you said, one system either is telling or has told a victim to do one thing. She's done that and complied with those requirements, and very soon thereafter another system is going to tell her to do something else. And what happens if the if she doesn't if she follows the the child protective services directive and doesn't let her her let's just say husband for right. sake of conversational ease um, um, and she doesn't let her husband uh, have access to the child because CPS told her no there's evidence here that he has hurt this child and and that in fact if you don't protect your child you're hurting your child too. And so, therefore, you, the mother says, okay, I'm going to keep this child away. And I think that for a lot of mothers, that's their main instinct anyway, mm-hmm. is I want to keep this child away from him. But then father's lawyer goes to court and says, look at this. She's interfering. She's not letting me have custody. And so many times I hear of family court judges who say to the mother, you can't do that, and, and because of that, we're going to punish you, and we're going to give full custody to that. So um, the, situ- the situation it, that you... It, it, which just boggles my mind. 
Yeah, so the probate and family court or the family court, you know, I can't speak to every state, but in general family courts, judges want both parents involved in the children's lives, no matter what, and as long as the judges believe that that is safe for the children. The the standard um, that the judge, the family court judges are dealing with is best interest of the child, and many judges believe that it is in the best interest of the child, barring some really horrific situations, to grant joint custody, which is very confusing and very challenging for victims of domestic violence because some judges, even if there are written findings and actual findings of domestic violence, that is not enough to bar joint custody. Again, I'm I'm gobsmacked by that. It, mm-hmm. it just <laughs> really okay. so domestic you violence know, it, is it a factor, to... right? So so a, so a family court judge will hopefully take into consideration a history of abuse of any kind of abuse, be it domestic violence or of course sexual abuse. Um, but it is just one factor in the determination as to who gets the actual custody of a child. Um, a judges judges are are going to look at a lot of different factors, such as who's been the primary caretaker, who's taken the child to the doctor, who's enrolled the child in school, who who clothes the child, who feeds the child, who supports the child financially, who provides housing to the child. There are lots and lots and lots, and those are just some of the factors. There are lots of different factors that a judge will take into consideration. Domestic violence and a history of domestic violence is just one. However, Many judges in situations where there has been a history of domestic violence and the parents are separated now because of the domestic violence, many judges don't believe it's a factor any longer. And we know as individuals who work with victims that that is absolutely not the case, that domestic violence and domestic abuse is based on the unequal balance of power and control in a relationship physical abuse and threats of abuse being just one of the imbalances, but there are many other forms of imbalances. And children and the power over children are one one of the biggest imbalances. And in family court, we see fathers, because we're using the word, we're using fathers, take advantage of the victim by using kids to hurt the victim, right? Um, just as they may have hurt the victim physically, in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that continuing to use whatever you can to control that person. Absolutely. And, and it's using really the judi- use, judicial system itself to hurt to hurt the victim. So mm-hmm. constantly dragging the victim back into court is something we see a lot. The other thing we see oh, yeah. quite frequently. Well, and especially since, you know, economically, it, it is typical that the, the abuser has more resources economically. So, you know, it, it it happens a lot. And so these poor women, and, you know, it always knocks me out when you talk to people and they say, well, why doesn't you just leave? And I'm thinking, for a lot of women, you know what, it's easier. It is easier to stay and be able to protect your child and be with your child than to have to go through all of this abuse via the court system and not have your child under your control, you know, under Absolutely. your protection, under your wing. You know, Absolutely. I mean, that's a frightening thing when you have to turn over a child to somebody you know can hurt them. Absolutely. And yet you are powerless to not do it, or else you could have the child taken away from you forever. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that's kind of what they do. You know, you can go on our webpage, um, uh, ways, and you can uh, join us on our chat line as well uh, if you don't want to phone in. Uh, if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to make on our chat line, please go ahead and do that. If you'd like to call us, 646-378-0430. Six four six three seven eight zero four three zero, and uh, we've got a tremendous resource in Margo here. Margo, when did you first realize that there were these conflicting demands of these um, bureaucracies, for lack of a better term? I first real I, I first realized it personally when I had my first case after law school. It's a case I talk about in my article. I was representing a young mother who had been a victim of domestic violence by the father of her child. There were also allegations of child sexual assault um, against the child. 
Um, in one of the most extreme violent incidents, um, this young woman fled, um, called the police, fled, went into shelter with her baby. She didn't speak English. There was an open um, child welfare case because of um, when she called the police and fled. There were also allegations of sexual assault, and there was clear demonstrative marks of domestic violence against her. She had a bruised eye. Um, so there was an open child welfare case. Anyhow, the, there was, um, the case was long and circuitous, but basically my client did everything that was asked of her by the child welfare agency. She completely separated from the abuser. She got a restraining order. A year-long restraining order was issued. She went into shelter in a different jurisdiction in the state, a place she had no community connection, so there was no way to interact with, with the abuser. Um, she engaged with the district attorney and the police on the child sexual assault allegations. Um, she she did everything, and he went to jail. He was held um, he was held because of his criminal record. Um, he went to jail. There was a supported finding while the case the child sexual assault case was pending. However, in the last incident of violence when she was escaping, um, he, he threw all of the evidence. Uh, the, the, she alleges that he threw all of the evidence out the window. So some of the evidence was on a computer and it shattered. And the, the, DA, the district attorney and the police needed to extract some information from the computer to make the criminal case hold, if that makes any sense. Anyhow, long story short, he was yes, released uh -huh. from jail. They didn't end up prosecuting him because they didn't have enough evidence. Um, the Child Welfare Agency closed the case, like I had mentioned earlier in the show, because the mom had achieved safety and dad was not in the picture, right? There was a year-long restraining order in place. And as soon as the Department of Children and Families closed the case and he was released from jail, the father filed for, for full custody in probate and family court. And that was the moment where I knew that something was very wrong with the system. And the case was very long and very drawn out. He hired, like many fathers do, a private attorney who was extremely aggressive, constantly filing motions. Luckily, my client had an attorney, had me. I worked for a legal services agency. Many victims do not have any sort of representation in these cases. Um, and we went back to court for years. And because the child welfare case had been closed, um, the judge had, in her mind, had no reason not to allow some form of visitation. So the vis visitation began very slowly. It was supervised at a supervised visitation center. And then he complied with all of the requirements of the supervised visitation center. Month months later, he filed for more visitation. Visitation went to becoming supervised by a third party, a family member, with drop-off at a local police station, so my client didn't have to see him. Those visits purportedly went fairly well. After that, he filed for overnights, and it just kind of went from there. And the eventual result was that my client retained full legal custody of her child, but she had to give her child up for overnights to someone who, who allegedly had sexually assaulted her when she was a baby. Now, what actually happened in the case, like in many cases, is that the father in this case was, was dragging my client back to court to hurt her, just as he had, as he had hurt her physically and emotionally in the past. As soon as the judge issued an order to allow him, for overnight, allow him to have overnights with his child, he didn't, he didn't want to do overnights because he didn't want the responsibility of taking care of a baby overnight. So what actually happened was that his mother ended up taking the child once a week overnight, and my client was okay with that because she was not opposed to her baby having a relationship with the paternal grandmother. But that was, that was kind of the, the moment for me where not only did I realize that victims of domestic violence were so badly hurt by the system because of these conflated expectations, but also without, but also that d victims of domestic violence typically don't have any sort of legal representation. So it is even more befuddling to them when they're trying to advocate for what they think the courts are expecting of them and then be being reprimanded by judges. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you and I were talking off air, and in my experience of talking with judges, most of them do not have a clue. Um, and you pointed out, and I, I've heard this before and I understand it, that um, the goal of most family courts is to keep families intact. Mm-hmm. Short of keeping them intact, they want to make sure that children have both parents. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think that having two parents is ideal, but if you have a parent that is hur- harmful to a child, it's better that that child not have that parent in their lives. That's how I feel. Courts apparently feel differently, and I'm no stranger to research. I know you can find research to support just about everything, but I must say most of the research that I've seen does not at this day and age support the notion that a child should be forced to uh, visit with a parent that is harmful to to that child. Um, Nevertheless, I don't know whether there's just a delay in... um, training of judges i mean i don't i don't know what it is why do judges and family courts feel so compelled to make sure that a parent who is proven um to have hurt a, a child why do why do they feel the courts feel compelled to keep that person in that child's life i don't understand that so i think we need to distinguish between child abuse and domestic violence and i think we often conflate the two and i think it's They're particularly conflated in family and probate court. What happens with domestic violence is that many judges believe that it is just directed at the victim, meaning the mother in this case, and that it's not harming the child or it's not directed at the child. So though, of course, judges don't support domestic violence per se and, of course, don't want children living in homes where there is domestic violence or domestic abuse, Many judges don't make the connection that domestic violence perpetrated by a father against a mother is directly harming a child to such an extent to terminate parental rights. In situations where the abuse is and direct... And yet we have statutes, we, mm-hmm. we have statutes, uh, the, the failure to protect statutes, which are just absolutely the opposite of that because they say that um, a, a mother who is not protecting her child from witnessing or from seeing her own abuse is, in fact, hurting her child. She's failing to protect her child. And there have been plenty of situations where women who are actually the victims of abuse are arrested and have their child taken away because they didn't, the mother didn't protect the child from seeing the mother being abused. I mean, absolutely. So those and that that right there is the tension that that is the biggest tension that I see between the probate and family court or the family the court in whatever state that decides custody and child welfare and the child welfare agencies because failure to protect is a form of neglect that it, that stems from child protective services and custody um, custody to a parent is determined by a family and probate court. So you're you're completely correct, Heather, that the courts are completely in conflict when it comes to this issue. Um, but when we're talking about judges issuing custody and visitation orders when there have been when there has been evidence of domestic violence, many judges, some judges don't are different, but many judges don't believe that domestic violence perpetrated by one parent against another is directly harming a child to such an extent to prevent all forms of visitation and custody. Hmm. So, uh, the I mean, clearly the research doesn't show that, and clearly that's conflicting. So what do the courts do to try to educate themselves about this? I mean, surely we're not the only two people in the world who've heard this. Um, you know, I mean... I, I guess it's hard for me to understand how the courts, especially a family court, it's not like they're dealing with murderers one day and, and child custody mm-hmm. the next. So I think the Why other... Why are they not aware of this? So I think some are aware of it, and I think kind of the added wrinkle or challenge that family courts are dealt with is that their mission, as we talked about, or their goal is family preservation, right, to not limit access to either parent. And then in many of the situations where there is domestic violence or documented histories of domestic violence, both parents have some sort of presenting problem. We know that being a victim of domestic violence comes is extremely hard. It's a long and many times pattern of abuse and control. And many victims 
understandably don't fare well after having endured something like that. So we see a lot of victims who have concurrent substance abuse issues, for example, mental health issues. Um, many of the times, as we talked about off air as well, um, one of the ways that um, batterers hurt their victims is through financial control or limiting access to employment. So many of our victims don't have strong work histories or do not have employment or stable housing. So judges are often presented with a with with a situation where they're trying to determine custody and visitation and where a child should live and the immediate situation, the immediate facts that they are given, there's not a great solution either way. We as advocates, we believe that that children should be with their victims and that the system should do more to provide some of those supports, such as housing, job training, child care, all of the things that we know is necessary to be a productive parent, but the family and probate court don't provide or connect families to any of that. Yeah. But don't they have to at least be aware of the conflict, the conflicting pressures when they when if I'm a judge sitting there and I say to this woman, "Okay, you are preventing your husband from seeing his child." That we cannot have. But then I see cuz I mean even if a a a woman is is trying to represent herself, surely she would have copies of documents from DSHS saying, "Okay, you can't let him have access to the child." And then she would show those to the judge, and the judge would say, oh, okay, well, you've got DSHS, DSHS which has studied the, the situation more closely than I have, who's saying, no, he can't have uh, control, so maybe I should alter my findings. I mean, it would seem to me that that's the way it would work, but it doesn't seem to. So I think in some situations it does. When there is an open, when there is an open, um, in Massachusetts we call a when there's an open 51A or a neglect and abuse case and the Department of Children and Families has either removed the children um, or is deciding upon where the children should be placed, when there's an active open case, our probate and family court won't make permanent decisions regarding custody and visitation. The situation that happens most frequently is when there's been a family that's been involved with child welfare with DCF for a long time, but then the case is closed because mom has achieved safety, and then dad goes into court and files for custody. Okay. Well, why would they close the case? I don't know. They often close cases. They, so they often close cases because a parent has complied with what they asked them to do. So in the situation that I talked about about my client, for example, DCF closed the case because my client did everything that was expected of her. She got a restraining order. She left the abusive parent. She she went into shelter. She obtained permanent housing for her and her daughter. And DCF, kind of, I think the case had been open for a year, didn't have any reason to keep the case open any longer because there was no imminent risk to the child. So the case closed. Except and then it, if custody has not been determined, isn't that an imminent risk? If custody has not been determined. So in Massachusetts, um, and I can't speak for other states, there's de facto physical sure, and yeah. legal custody to mom when parents are unmarried. So, so this mom had full physical and legal custody of her daughter. It only changed when the dad went to family and probate court and filed mm. for custody. So there is okay, and I suppose. Go ahead. Nope, that was it. Oh, okay. I suppose that it would be too. I mean, because we are talking human beings and and workload and all that other stuff. So I suppose it would be. Although it would seem logical that mom could then go to CPS and say, or the child protective agency and say, okay, he has filed for new custody, so we need to reopen this case here from this end. So the, you but have identified. Would, yeah. So you that. Right there, you've identified another problem that we have. Mom could go back to DCF or the Child Welfare Agency and say, hey, this abusive parent is filing for custody. Please reopen the case. Please reopen the case because I don't want, I don't want him to have access to my child. 
but at least in Massachusetts, they would only reopen that case if there was a new incident of neglect and abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and each state operates a little bit differently. Each state operates so. a little bit differently, but there are these basic fundamentals that that you know that cases do close, and that the different courts really do expect very different things of parents. Yeah. I think of another thing. It that just is, could. It, Sorry. So another thing that is 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 very very confusing is that the timing of all of the cases doesn't always work perfectly, as you may imagine, and the timing in all of the different courts is very different. So in Massachusetts, for example, and in many states, in most states, I believe, having a permanent restraining order or civil protection order that that happens on a year-to-year basis. So if an individual has a restraining order or protective order against someone, he or she will have to renew that on a year-to-year basis. Probate and family court, divorces, custody, visitations, those courts operate on a completely different time, time frame, and depending on the docket, the jurisdiction, and the backlog that those courts are facing, those cases can drag on for years. And then... Juvenile courts or courts that hear these abuse and neglect cases, those courts operate on their own time frame. And for a client who has been a victim of domestic violence, who has clearly suffered trauma, is at risk of losing her children, has some of the other concurrent issues that we spoke about earlier, understanding even the difference between the court systems is really problematic. For example, here in Boston, in one of our courts, one of our courts in in downtown Boston has a district court, a superior court, a family court, a juvenile court, a housing court, all within the same building. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be unheard of as a client without any representation to not understand the difference between any of those courts. It's the same exact building. They're different courtrooms of course, but but it's a really confusing system. Well, and don't forget that just not, I mean, not only the, the, the lack of legal expertise, but you're also going through a major trauma. Absolutely. You're fighting for your children. You're, Absolutely. You're, you know, I mean, it's it's not like you're, everything else is ideal and you just have to worry about this. I mean, no. you, you're probably having to struggle financially. You're struggling, you know, to get your kids what they need. You're struggling, struggling, struggling. And at the same time, trying to figure out all of this. And at the same time, in the best of this horrible scenario, you're parenting. And as we all know, parenting isn't a job that you can just turn off. So even to be an okay parent under this circumstance is, is, is really, really challenging. Well, and I imagine there are co-concurring things, knowing, knowing how these kinds of relationships go. I would imagine that dad or dad's lawyer might be calling uh, child protective services and saying, you know what? I mean, um, I saw my daughter, and she doesn't have a coat, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I'm paying child support for this coat, and the mother's not doing this, and I'm turning her in for neglect, and she must be using that money for herself, and, you know, my daughter said she doesn't have a coat, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, those kinds of things do go on, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we talked about how batters can use the legal system to harm victims by consistently dragging them into court. They can also abuse mm-hmm. their victims by constantly calling CPS or child welfare, also um, by telling lies, both by, by telling lies to their children about the mother, for example. There, there are many ways that abusers hurt their victims during these proceedings or during these situations where, where both parties are fighting for custody of the children. Yeah, yeah. Ah. I mean, the other so thing that we... Overwhelming. It is, it's completely overwhelming. The other thing that we also know, and I do not think there's been, in general, enough training of judges and court personnel about this issue, though it's a hard issue to train on, is that we also know that abusers are master manipulators, right? They've, they've been able to exert power and control over their victims in their interpersonal relationships with them, but they also are able many times to manipulate different systems. So we know, for example, that abusers present really well in court, for example, many times, mm-hmm. that they'll come to court. And as um, we were talking about over, uh, before 
we went on air, I mean, that so works to their benefit because mm-hmm. mom is frazzled. And so mm-hmm. the uh, impression, the initial impression is, well, here's this guy. He's got it all together, and she's uh, and, and he's nine times out of ten, he's sitting there telling the court that she's crazy and out of control. And sure enough, she looks kind of crazy and out of control, you know. <laughs> Um, I mean, it, it just, it, it's just, so how do we get these courts and judges trained to understand these things? So one of the things um, that I do think is useful, and I know it's happening across the country, is, is training judges and court personnel on just very common symptoms of, of being either an abuser or being a victim of domestic violence. So just as you said, that many times our victims do present as frazzled because they are frazzled, because they haven't, for example, slept, because one of the ways their abusers hurt them is by keeping them up all night, for example, or that they that they really are suffering from some sort of PTSD or trauma because of the abuse that, that has been inflicted on them, or they're terrified of losing their children, or they don't have enough money to buy appropriate clothing for court. So having a victim present as not put together shouldn't harm her chances in court. We should know that that is very common. The other thing that we can and should and have to do, although there hasn't been a solution to this either, is we need to be able to find more legal representation for victims in civil court matters. Because as we've been talking about, these matters drag out. They're really painful. They're extremely complicated. And having some form of legal representation or some form of legal advocacy really does help a victim in the proceedings, emotionally and with the outcome. Yeah. Well, and just as you said, by knowing that there's all these different courts, by knowing that there's all these different approaches, and and that this, okay, you're taking, you're going to juvenile court, that then they don't care at juvenile court about this particular issue. They're caring right. about this issue. Um, I know a lot of times when I have observed women who are representing themselves um, in a court situation, it's. I, I think that we, as a general public, tend to think of a court system as a justice system. And so we expect that if we tell our tale, justice will prevail. But in fact, it, 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 that's, and I don't mean this in a necessarily bad, cynical way, but it's not about justice. It's about that particular issue and the set of laws around that issue. Mm-hmm. And how so those courts you could evaluate. situations. Yeah, and you could have the worst, you know, most pathetic situation in the world, and the judge could feel terrible for you, but it's irrelevant. If you're there to determine, you know, X, and you're telling this sad story about Y that you see is completely attached to, to, you know, X and Y are completely attached, but not in the purposes of that court. And I think it's so hard for all of us to understand that, um, that it doesn't have to do with, you know, the overall picture, it has to do with this particular issue and the particular laws that apply to that issue. Am I and right? I, I think you're completely right. And I also think the general public doesn't understand just that, that each court has its own sets of laws, its own basis on which they're making determinations, and their own goals. So the goals of the juvenile court are different from the goals of the probate and family court, which are different than the goals of the criminal court or the district court. And I don't think the general public necessarily knows all that unless they've been involved themselves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Once you get involved, I mean, I don't know that there are so many people, they might know that there's a civil court and a criminal court, but I, I think anything more complex than that, any any greater of a breakdown, and most of us don't even really know. Mm-hmm. Um if I didn't know better, I would think family court. Oh, okay, well, that's where all of these issues would go to family court. You know, well, no, there's juvenile court, and there's, you know, if you have criminal charges, then those usually end up in criminal court. And uh, it, it's just so overwhelming. So why did you write your article? I wrote my article because I was, just as you are, really, really perplexed by this by this scenario, and it's a scenario that repeats itself over and over. Maybe not as maybe not every client is as multi-court involved as the client that I spoke about or the client that I represented, but I see it all the time 
in my clinic even, we represent victims of domestic violence in a local district court on restraining order matters. And most of those clients that come, we, we, we pick up those clients at court. So we sit at an intake center and then offer our services. Mm-hmm. And most of those clients that come through the district court, the local district court, to get restraining orders against a partner, against a family member who they live with, against a roommate, are also involved in other court systems. And when people have children, very likely they're involved in multiple court systems. And it's extremely confusing. It, it, the, the confusion proliferates. It's not something that just happens in a silo. So this is an issue that keeps happening, and I'm, I hope that I can make a difference. I think one of the things I really try very hard to do in my clinic with my students is really explain the complexity of our clients' lives and the different expectations placed on them, not only by the different court systems, but just by their lives, right, by by mm-hmm. um, potentially the housing, the the shelter that they live in, the housing authority that they live in, um, if they are in, if they are living in a housing authority, the com- complex and um, unknown pressures put on by different family setups, um, differing expectations placed up by different administrative agencies that might be involved. So, for example, if someone is receiving um, public benefits, really that our clients' lives are extremely complex, and working on a restraining order is just one issue among many that a client is dealing with. Yeah. I think um, Well, if, we think that our, our... Go on. Yeah, we think that our lives are complex. I mean, just, I mean, think of your friends, your family, you know, I mean, everybody thinks their lives are so busy, so complex, and it is nothing most of these lives compared to a woman who is trying to get out of an abusive situation. Right, um, and, and you know, leaving I mean, an abusive situation can often be putting an individual in more danger for a variety of reasons. So we know, we know that separation assault, right, when the time when an individual leaves a domestic violence relationship is the time that it is most lethal for her and her family. But there are other things that we don't always take into consideration. For example, if if the batterer or the abuser was 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 a protective person. If if an individual lives in a high crime area and having the abuser home makes makes that family safer from from neighborhood violence, leaving that violent home could put her in more danger. Or kicking an abuser out could put her in more danger. There's so many competing expectations and fears that as an advocate we don't necessarily know. So one of the things I really try to enforce with my students is not just kind of not not being just a bulldog lawyer as you as people say and just fighting for the restraining order because that's the modality by which they think it's going they think it's going to help their client a restraining order can help clients but it's just a piece of paper at the end of the day and it's only so good as the as someone who wants to abide by it um so I really try to enforce with my, my students kind of the complexity of the systems, the complex nature of many of our clients' lives, and really stress safety planning because a client yeah. knows how to keep herself safe. She's done it for as many years as she's been alive, and she knows her bu- abuser the best. And she'll know if a restraining order is going to put her or her children in in a better situation or not. And I really stress with my students how to kind of elicit those facts and elicit those issues through interviewing, counseling, and really good advocacy. It sounds like you're great at that. And One of my little pet peeves is that so many times lawyers who represent these women who are so frazzled and feel so so overwhelmed by all of this and so unsure by all of this, and I have seen many cases where even well-meaning attorneys um, kind of bash them um, it's like, well, um, the restraining order. Okay, well, you know what? We're going to put together this restraining order, and you have to decide whether you're going to be an enabler or not or, go, or whether you're going to sign for this. I've heard of that. And it's like, really? You really think that somehow or other she is an enabler, some sort of flawed person, 
for not immediately, you know, hauling his rear end in uh, into jail or getting the restraining order or whatever. Mm-hmm. It is so much more complex than that. Yeah, and I, I think that's very troubling to me, what you say. And I think another area that we all can improve on, no matter what state we're in, is better training for lawyers as well. So we talk a lot about judges needing more training, which is true, but lawyers also need training as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, because you're not going to get those well-trained judges if you don't have well-trained attorneys. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, from <laughs> mighty judges from little attorneys grow, you know, <laughs> <laughs> for the most part. I don't think there are very many attorney, or judges left anymore that do not have law degrees and who are not practicing attorneys or who haven't been practicing attorneys. I was going through your article which I just loved. I mean, I, I just it is so comprehensive, and oh, and even you. if you're not a particularly re- research kind of oriented person, I would really recommend that you find Marco's article. I'm looking here for my citation, and I didn't print the first page, but it's from the Journal of Gender, Social Policy, and the Law, Volume okay. 20, Issue 4, and it's from I believe 2012, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. 2012. Yeah. It's very comprehensive, and even though, like I said, it's three years old, it is absolutely up to the moment, I believe, in information. So if you work in the field, if you are an attorney, if you are uh, someone, anyone who works with um, women who have to go to court, I think would benefit from reading Margot's um, article. Uh, it, it just really, it's well-researched. It gives good uh, information. In going through it, Margot, um, you also give some vignettes that are kind of like, oh, you know. <laughs> you know, so it's an easy read as well. It's not just some sort of, you know, research paper. Um, but one of the things that bothered me, and we're talking about judges again, is this whole idea of gender symmetry. And I have encountered so many uh, judges and so many people who work in the legal system, um, guardians ad litem, uh, parent advocates, etc., who believe this notion that domestic violence has gender symmetry. And what that means is that just as many women um, uh, are, uh, perpetrate domestic violence against men as men do against women, well, that is not true. And and you see that repeated over and over and over, and so many really intelligent people believe that and it is not true how do you deal in uh, a legal system or how do you deal with these issues in a legal system where the assumption is we're not going to be sexist here just as many men uh, women are abusers as men and uh, how do you deal with that marco well i think you know i hate to sound like a broken record but i i do think educating kind of the people working in the systems is the first step. And we know, um, and I talk about this in my article, that the low-level violence that um, is sometimes coined as situational couple violence does happen fairly regularly or equally among genders. But we also know that the high levels of violence, the violence that ends that, pe- that ends people up in hospitals or ambulances for which 911 is called, where there's serious incidents of abuse, murder, murder, suicides, for example, the 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 majority of those individuals perpetrating the violence are men, and the majority of the individuals who are suffering the violence are women, and that's just what the statistics are. <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah, yeah, and it's become so popular. I think I, I think that we all want to be fair. We all want to make sure you know we don't want to be racist. We don't want to be sexist. We don't want to be ageist and all this kind of stuff, and we're so intent in in not being those ists that we tend to buy into things like, um, well, if I refer to domestic violence perpetrators as male, then I'm being sexist. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, you're not. It, um, you know, I mean, forget this notion that somehow or other, oh, I don't even know how to say it. Forget the notion that somehow or other, Everything is equal. I think one of the ways we can change, I mean, I think part of it is changing the dialogue, to be honest, I think, or having two dialogues happening at the same time. I think we can acknowledge that low-level domestic abuse among partners is equal across genders, across different types of relationships. It's equal in 
all sorts of relationships, LGBTQ, same-sex, um, heterosexual relationships, men against women, women against men. We can agree that low-level low level abuse, right, shouting, pushing, low-level threats, that happens at a fairly equal rate among genders. I think we can agree to that, but I think the conversation needs to go a step further, like you say, and really evaluate what the statistics say about the types of domestic violence that really harm individuals physically, emotionally, for which people end up in the hospital and for which people end up dead. And those, not to be too sinister here, but those crimes, the majority of the perpetrators are men and the majority of the victims are women, of course, in heterosexual relationships. Um, and that's just yeah. that's just what the data, that's just what the statistics say. And so I think I agree that we all want to be, we want to be as sensitive and as sensitive and as open-minded as possible about how issues can affect all genders, all different populations, everything. And that is absolutely true. And there's a lot more understanding that we need to have and a lot more awareness that we need to have about domestic violence in LGBTQ relationships. We have to understand better about how this issue is affecting our young people. Teen dating violence is a huge issue and it's only getting worse Elder abuse is a huge issue that's only going to get worse as baby boomers age, right? So there's so many different areas where abuse is happening that we don't have good a good understanding or as much data than we have. But we do have a lot of data about what is happening in dating and intimate partner relationships. And we do know that these high-level dangerous situations where someone is very badly hurt, that the majority of the per- perpetrators are men and the majority of the victims are women. Yeah. And children. And, and children. children. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you had, so, we, you know, one of the things that I also, I I just actually <laughs> poured through your article making little margin notes and everything. Um, one of the things that um, I also made a note on when I was going through it and I'm flipping through madly here, is not just the gender symmetry notion that I, I think, you know, when I deal with uh, or when I see or hear of situations with courts, it seems like to me that that gender symmetry is really a notion that they don't want to let go of. Um, and the same thing with guardians ad litem. And you give a little vignette in your book or in your story here about um, uh, a guardian ad litem and also a judge who have no experience whatsoever with domestic violence. They don't get it. That is so harmful. If you are a mother, for example, a protective mother who is fighting for your children and you have a a guardian ad litem assigned to your case who is not familiar with domestic violence, who is not familiar with these kinds of things, are you just screwed? Is there anything you can do about that? So, well, you can ask for a new guardian ad litem to be put on the case. I mean administratively that's what you could ask for or you could try to do some advocacy about who the guardian ad litem is that is appointed to the case and try to find a guardian ad litem that has experience with domestic violence you can also require that in whatever state you work or live in that all guardian ad litems go through mandatory annual domestic violence and sexual assault training that doesn't always happen of Mm. course but um, that is something that yeah. uh, that is something that we could impose or require of our guardian ad litems. If somebody wants to become an advocate, if somebody really wants to take on the issue of seeing that guardians ad litem and um, um, judges and attorneys are made aware of domestic violence issues, and uh, what what can they do? Well, I think um, I think everyone should get involved at some level with a local domestic violence agency in their area. Um, there's a lot of 
volunteer opportunities. I before um, before coming to Northeastern, I was the director of programs at a local domestic violence agency here in Massachusetts called Respond, and we always had tons of volunteers and interns who went through mandatory training and then um, had the ability to work on our hotline, work in our community-based programs, and really see how big and how profound this issue is because I think it is eye-opening for people to even understand that this happens everywhere, right? So I would say if someone is interested and wants to make a difference, that's their first step, get involved. Well, and there is a, a, a lot. There are a lot of um, help uh, organizations online that can direct you. There's the Women's Justice Center. Uh, you can advocate. You know, you can act, act, activate that. You can go to that rather on the web, and they have some resources of where you can go and how you can make a difference. Um, that is a, certainly a good place to start. Your local um, domestic violence. Uh, shelter can probably direct you. Um, the every state has a, a coalition against domestic violence. Uh, you could look those up, and uh, there's also a domestic violence hotline. Now I might be giving this out incorrectly, but I'm suspecting that since they're so helpful and so resourceful, domestic violence hotline is one national number you can call if you're experiencing domestic violence, and they can um, direct you to local help for you. I'm betting that uh, that they can also direct you to a local place at least Absolutely. as a starting point if you want to become active. And Absolutely. that number is 1-800-799-7233. I can't read my own handwriting. Is it 33 or 83? It is 33. 799-7233. 1-800-799-7233. And that's the Domestic Violence Hotline. Start there. Do a... Um, uh, search online, and um, what can somebody do? One quick question here. What can somebody do if they are going through this or know they're going to be going through this multi-court, multi-system situation? What can they do to help themselves? Um, I mean, is there any, like, record-keeping or any um, – um, what, what can they do? Um, well, I think you – know, I think um, Short if- of being – Extremely wealthy and hiring great lawyers. Right. So short of short of hiring a private attorney who can navigate navigate the waters of all the different court systems for them, um, if the individual has access to the internet, I would encourage them to really educate themselves on the different courts for which they, in front of which they will be appearing. So really dig deep on every court. Every local court has a website. Um, so to look up the different courts where they are. What they are, what 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 they what their responsibilities are. That's a first step. A second step is to pull, if possible, um, maybe with the assistance. I, I don't know how it is in other other states, but going to the local law library and pulling what the laws say regarding custody, legal and physical custody, and visitation, and the factors involved in making those decisions in a given jurisdiction. So what is the custody law in your state? What is the abuse law in your state? And what is the abuse and neglect law in your state? So those three areas, look up what the custody law is, so what is the family and probate court going to be looking at when making a determination regarding custody? What does the abuse law say in your state? So what is a low-level district court going to be evaluating when issuing restraining orders or civil protection orders? How are they going to be making a determination as to your safety and your eligibility for a restraining order? And then the juvenile court, so the court that is deciding abuse and neglect. How are they defining abuse and neglect? How is domestic violence incorporated in abuse and neglect, and what does their statute say on failure to protect? Excuse me, Because I think having that knowledge at the minimum will arm individuals who are having to go through this on their own with information at the minimum about which the courts are looking at. And if you can, don't, you know, set pride aside. Most women who go through these experiences do set their pride aside. And I'm saying, you know, just just set it aside. Don't, don't have pride. They have your, your grit. And if you can find somebody to advocate for you, find them, whether it's a legal advocate from a shelter, whether it's your, you know, cousin Sally, whether it's whatever, 
forget about trying to maintain your dignity and find somebody who could help you through this mess. Hopefully it's somebody knowledgeable. And, um, you know, just realize that you're fighting for your children and for yourself. And so, you know, stay with it. Thank you so much for joining us today, um, Margot. And, you know, I told you that I end our show with a quote, and I had one from Alec Baldwin, but, I, you know, I really can't bring my quote up. Um, so instead I'm going to be qu- quoting you. I'm going to quote Margot Lindauer. Being a good mother is difficult. Being a good mother and a victim of domestic violence is even harder. Thank you for joining us. Join us next week. We'll have Thank another topic. Thank you so much, Heather. Thank you and for the opportunity. we are three women. You're welcome. We are three women, three ways. <laughs>